turn our attention to God's Word this morning. I invite the, uh, any children ages uh, 4 through 1st grade to be dismissed to children's worship at this time. And the rest of you, if you have your Bibles with me, can turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, uh, this uh, picks up where Paul left off, uh, encouraging us to shine like stars in the midst of a dark and depraved world. And so Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, he kind of shifts gears at this point and, and uh, turns to some instructions about Timothy and Epaphroditus. So before we read, I invite you to bow with me as you ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we may hear these words in a way that you would have us to hear them, that it may bear fruit in us, the kind of fruit that you would desire that would be for our good and for your glory. So Lord, do your work in us this morning as we come under the authority of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. The Apostle Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things are, uh, go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. And so then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. You may be seated. Leonardo da Vinci once wrote that a poet would be overcome by sleep and hunger before being able to describe with words what a painter is able to depict in an instant. And that quote was one of the precursors of what became the more famous and the more recent adage that a picture is worth a thousand words. And if you ever question the truth of that sentiment, then you can just think uh, of the last time that you had to assemble 
uh, sort of a complicated piece of furniture or an appliance or, or even a, you know, putting up a tent or something like that. If you only have words to go by, it is a difficult and time-consuming endeavor. But when you have a, a picture or, or a diagram, you can see in an instant where each piece is supposed to go and how it all fits together. And so what is hard to sort of conceptualize with words alone becomes suddenly concrete and, and clear with a picture. As we have seen throughout our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he has been urging us to be Christ-like in our relationships with one another. And he's given us all kinds of instructions about having the same self-giving disposition as Christ. And there have been some deep and profound things that he has been writing, these instructions that he's been sharing with us. And, And we may think at this point, we may wonder, you know, how does this sort of what does this look like in, in, in just real life, nitty-gritty details of everyday life? What, what these things that Paul has been writing about, what might that look like played out in person? And so Paul, at this point in his letter, gives us just what we need, and that is a picture. He paints a picture to capture the truths that he has been writing about. And so he sets before us these two men as the very embodiment of the things that he has been writing about. Two men who show us the the real life, flesh and blood, tangible working out of his instructions. And I have to admit that at first glance, uh, this text, uh, while it's one that I would, would in some sense, rather skip over in terms of preaching through a letter. It's like, well, what do I do with this, right? This, you know, we've come from all these beautiful, wonderful things that Paul's been talking about, and now we come to this, and it just seems sort of trivial and mundane. These words of Paul just don't seem to have the same kind of theological punch or, or grist that we found in, in the previous passages, right? Paul has taken us to the depths of Christ's humble obedience to the point of death on a cross, And he's taken us to the heights of his exaltation as the supreme Lord of the universe. And he's given us this this theological meat to chew on in his command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he's instructed us and challenged us to shine like stars in the midst of a dark and depraved world as we hold firmly to the word of life. And he's written all of this within the context, within the the broader context of wanting us to have this Christ-like disposition, to have the mindset of Christ in our relationships with one another, That that, that disposition of humble selflessness. And so in in light of these these deep and profound truths that Paul has been writing about, what he says in our text this morning just seems so glaringly ordinary. And he goes from challenging the Philippians to shine like stars in the darkness to saying things like, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. And I'm sending to you Epaphroditus who is ill. And it's just kind of like, When I read it the first time, it's a little bit like reading a grocery list after indulging in uh, the the novels of Tolstoy or the poetry of Tennyson. You know, you you go from these lofty, beautiful, profound things to just sort of this mundane, trivial words. But if we understand that Paul is indeed painting a picture, setting before us these concrete examples of what it looks like to live out the very things that he's been writing about, then these verses are anything but ordinary and mundane. They show us what it looks like to be the kind of disciples that Paul has been urging us to be. And so the text itself 
falls into two main parts. In the first part, Paul paints a picture of Timothy. And in the second part, he paints a picture of Epaphroditus. And so we're going to focus our attention on those two pictures this morning. And we see in these pictures what growing up to be like Jesus looks like in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. So let's begin then with Timothy. Uh, Timothy was Paul's longtime traveling companion and ministry associate. And, And by the way, when I first began working on this message earlier in the week, I had pages, literally pages of material on Timothy, and I had done a whole uh, sort of a history of Timothy, where is he from, you know, what, you know, what were his roots, his, his beginnings, the, the history of Timothy, the, the sort of the social cultural setting in which he lived, the biblical survey of everything that the Bible says to, about Timothy, his special relationship with Paul, all this stuff that I was going to share with you, and then I read it, and I was like, well, that is incredibly boring. And so I condensed all of that into this one sentence. Timothy was Paul's longtime traveling companion and ministry associate. There you go. If you want the rest, you can ask me for it, and I'll be happy to share it with you. So we see in these verses how highly Paul views Timothy. And the reason, by the way, that I went a different direction is because I think it was distracting us from what I think Paul is intending to do in this particular text. And so it is very interesting. I love Timothy, um, and there's uh, some great things, but for our the focus of, of the text this morning, we're going to stick with what I have here. So uh, Paul uh, paints a very high view of Timothy in these verses, and he paints a picture of Timothy as a selfless shepherd. And so I think for both of these men, both for Timothy and Epaphroditus, there's sort of this central dominating image that comes through in Paul's picture that he paints. And for Timothy, he paints uh, Timothy as a selfless shepherd. Paul says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Let me just pause there briefly because the context here, the background, is that Timothy is with Paul while Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And imagine what a great, you know, Timothy was, like I said, Paul's longtime traveling companion. He probably had been traveling with Paul at this point at the time of the writing of Philippians for a decade or more. And so, long-time traveling companion, ministry associate, friend, and he's with Paul while Paul is under house arrest in Rome, and he is uh, planning on sending Timothy back to the church in Philippi to attend to needs there and to oversee the church and to, and to deal with that, whatever needs to be dealt with, and then Timothy will come back to Paul to report back to him uh, how things are going. That's, that's the, the sense here, and that's the, the context in which this was this was written. But what a comfort it must have been to Paul to have Timothy there with him, ministering to him while he was under house arrest in Rome. So he says, I, uh, I hope to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. So Timothy will come back and report to him, and he's anticipating it'll be good news. And he says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Man, what a rare and beautiful thing it is to find someone who shows genuine concern, genuine selfless concern for the welfare of others. 
Someone who cares for others authentically in these self-giving ways, who genuinely, authentically cares for the needs of, of other believers in Christ and just has this heart of compassion and a heart of concern for the rest of the body. And just, you can see it in his eyes, you can see it and you can hear it in his words and his actions. He is one who is genuinely, authentically selfless in his desire to shepherd the body of Christ as a shepherd cares for his sheep. I read a story recently about a man named Thomas Stewart. And uh, uh, Thomas Stewart, uh, I think this was back in the 50s or 60s or something like that. But at the age of 16, Thomas Stewart injured one of his eyes with a knife. Actually, he, had, he re-injured it. He, was in, uh, he had something wrong with his eye as a child. And then at the age of 16, he injured it again with a, with a knife. And it caused, uh, so that eye went, went blind and it caused some significant damage. And a specialist determined that the eye would have to be removed because otherwise it could lead to other more long-term kinds of damage. And so uh, surgery was scheduled, and when the operation was over, to, to uh, Thomas's dismay and to the dismay of his whole family, the surgeon had removed the wrong eye. And so uh, he came out of that surgery just completely, totally blind. And at this point, he was preparing to go to college, and he thought that being blind, he would have to give up his aspirations for college. But his brother, William, uh, encouraged him to enroll and said, you know, I, I, I'll help you through it. We'll, we'll kind of do this together. I don't want you to give up your dream of going to college. Let's, I'll walk with you through it. And so the two of them began their studies at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and out of concern for his blind brother, William, sacrificed his own time and his own energy and even uh, his own studies. And so he just gave, he poured himself into his brother, and he would read textbooks to his brother, and he would transcribe the exams, and he would accompany Thomas to the lectures. And at the end of their college career, both of these young men were, were brilliant but at the end of his, their college career, Thomas, the one who was blind, graduated at the top of his class. And he received uh, the Elizabeth Torrance Gold Medal. And his brother, William, who had given so much and who probably most likely would have ended up at the top of the class because of his self-giving concern for his brother, ended up in second place earning the silver medal. This is just sort of one little glimpse of a man who had, who had genuine selfless concern for the welfare of his brother. And that's what Paul says Timothy was like. I have no one else like him, Paul says, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. He honestly, in, in his heart of hearts, cares for you. He asks about you all the time. He prays for you. Always. His heart is burdened for you when things aren't going well. In a world where everyone looks out for their own interests, Timothy stands out as this selfless shepherd. He is a living flesh and blood example of the very thing that Paul has been writing about. Remember what Paul, Paul's uh, commands and his instructions to the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of the others. And now Paul says that the prevailing sentiment in the warped and crooked generation of Romans among whom he is living and among whom the Philippians are living in Philippi, the prevailing sentiment was one of self-worship. That everybody's just looking out for their own interests. Everybody's out to serve number one. 
And it may have been disguised and hidden in, in various ways, but as Paul said, everyone looks out for their own interest, and yet Timothy was different. He shined like a star in the darkness because he was a selfless shepherd in, this, in a sea of self-consumed sheep. And you kind of get the idea in these verses that Timothy was, the, uh, was with Paul and he was ready to do whatever he could do to help him and to advance the gospel. And so if Paul wanted him to stay with him in, uh, in Rome for a while, Timothy would be like, whatever you want, however I, however I can best serve you and Christ in his kingdom, that's what I'm here for. So I'll stay with you as long as you want me to be here. And if Paul wanted him to go to, Philipp, to, to Philippi because his heart was burdened for Philippi and some of the things that he'd heard, the, the troubles that that church was having, he said, Timothy, I'd really like you to go and to, to oversee that ministry there and, to, and just to, you know, to instruct them and to encourage them, to pray for them, to shepherd them. Timothy would have said it would have gone in a heartbeat. Whatever could best serve Paul and Christ and his kingdom whatever that might look like, wherever he needed to be, he would go. He was by all accounts a selfless shepherd who gave himself out of genuine concern for his fellow believers. He was the kind of guy, you get the, 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 the sense that he was the kind of guy who, as one preacher says, would walk into a room and everyone had the feeling that he was saying to them, where have you been? I've been looking all over for you. And no matter who it was, no matter what room he was in, just the kind of guy that would go up to you and just look you, look you in the eye and, and, and listen to what was going on and, and just have this, this heart that you could tell genuinely cared. There's a story, a true story from many years ago about a, a prominent soldier who was returning from foreign duty and there was a, a newly hired driver who was sent to the train station to pick him up and and so this dry, this uh, driver asked how well, you know how will I be able to recognize this soldier that I'm that I'm supposed to go pick up but you know you know how will I how will I know who he is and his elderly mother uh, answered him and said you know well he'll be the one helping someone else and sure enough when the train pulled in the driver saw a man assisting an old woman and it was the soldier, because that's always what he was doing. He was always helping somebody else. That's the way it was with Timothy. And so as we ponder what it looks like to be the kind of Christ follower that, call, that, that uh, Paul calls us to be, we can begin by looking to Timothy, who was this picture of a selfless shepherd. This is what it looks like to put Paul's instructions into action. And it means having within us, and praying for God, if we don't have it naturally, praying for God to give us an authentic concern for the body of Christ, an authentic concern for fellow brothers and sisters. It means giving yourself to care for their needs. It means driving to the hospital in the middle of the night. It means picking up the phone to ask how a struggling brother or sister in Christ is doing. It means delivering meals and sending cards and giving up a weekend to help paint a nursery for the new family at church. As one preacher said, we must not overlook the tremendous impact of apparently inconsequential actions and deeds. I mean, I think we often don't, we, we don't fully realize what a difference and what an impact it can, it can make on someone's life simply to pick up the phone and call. And simply to, to say, you know what, I, I really care about you. 
I, I, I love you as a brother and sister in Christ. And I, I want to hear how you're, how can I be praying for you? And then, and then a few days later or the next week to call back and say, you know, you shared a little while ago about this thing that you were struggling with and I've been praying for you. And I just want to hear how things are going. Do you have any idea what a difference that makes in someone's life? And so the first picture that Paul paints of a Christ-like follower is a picture of Timothy as a selfless shepherd. The second picture that Paul paints is a picture of Epaphroditus. Now, we don't know anything about Epaphroditus beyond what Paul tells us in this letter. And so Paul says, that, uh, says he was your messenger, uh, that is the messenger of the Philippians, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Now, again, the, the picture here, what this means is the, that the Philippians took up an offering to give to Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome. And they sent Epaphroditus as the bearer of this financial gift. We, we see this a little bit more clearly at the end of the letter where Paul says in chapter 4, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now this, this gift was, a, an immensely, uh, was an immense blessing to Paul because without that financial gift, he would not have been able to stay in that rented house where he was under house arrest. He most likely would have been held in a dungeon instead. And so it was a, a huge thing for the, for the Philippians to give this gift. And Epaphroditus was the errand boy, in a sense, the, the, the bringer of this gift to them. And so he is a gift-bearer messenger from the Philippian church. But he's also a lot more than that. If Timothy is a picture of a, a selfless shepherd, then Epaphroditus is a picture of the suffering servant. Paul refers to him as my brother and co-worker and fellow soldier. And then he goes on to say how Epaphroditus fell gravely ill, carrying out the work that the Philippian church had sent him to do. So on his way, apparently, he, he became severely ill, and yet he battled his way through and kept on going, which is about 800-mile journey uh, to travel from Philippi to Rome. And Paul says uh, that he grew, grew gravely ill on the way. And so Paul says he's going to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, and he urges them to welcome him. And he says, so then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. You know, in a, in a culture where taking risks is taboo, except in the realms of business ventures or financial investment and everywhere else to take a risk is taboo. In the midst of that kind of a culture, Epaphroditus stands out like a star in the darkness showing us the way of discipleship. A picture of one who risked his life for the sake of Christ and his people. Man, can we not learn from the likes of him. This picture of Epaphroditus reminds me of, of another servant of Christ and uh, uh, that many of you know, and that is the missionary Jim Elliott. On January 3rd, 1956, Jim and uh, four other missionaries landed on a small strip of land in uh, the jungles of Ecuador. Their hearts were set on reaching the, the Alca Indians, um, and uh, it was a, an extremely dangerous mission. And so they, they felt burdened to bring the good news of Jesus to this particular uh, people group. Um, and they knew it was an extremely dangerous mission uh, because the, the Alcas were a notoriously dangerous tribe. In fact, no one had ever reached them before. Uh, no one had ever uh, had uh, sustained contact with them. Everybody who had gone ended up killed. 
And they, they knew that. And so the missionaries were very well aware of the risks, and they had discussed it with their wives. And they, they were all, four, all five of them were married. Four of them were fathers. They all had, they, so the four of them had families. They discussed it with their wives. They talked it over with their families. They knew the risks. And Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliot, said in an interview once, in answer to the question, well, why did they then go? If they knew how dangerous it was, why did they go leave their families behind and go? And she said this. She said, they went simply because they knew they belonged to God. They were his servants. And they had no choice but to willingly obey him. And that meant obeying his commands to take the good news to every nation, including the Alka Indians. So they went in obedience as servants of Christ. And so on January 3rd, they arrived in that land. And on January 8th, just five days after their arrival, the missionaries were supposed to radio in to give their report. And when the designated time for the report came, there was silence on the radio. And so a plane was sent and then a rescue party. And sure enough, the bodies of those five missionaries were found. They had all been speared to death by the people they came to serve. The rescue party that uh, arrived found Jim Elliott's diary. And the diary records the last words that he wrote just a couple of days before his death as they waited for the Aka Indians to come. And this is what he wrote, the last entry in his journal. He said, Oh, the fullness, the pleasure, the sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him and please him. Oh, Jesus, master and center and end of all. Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought of for nothing else. So hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. Well, these words reveal the the heart of a man who was a servant of Christ to the core. A man who knew, as he himself had written uh, years earlier, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Like Epaphroditus, Jim Elliot was a man who embraced the call to be a suffering servant. A man who didn't hesitate to risk his own life for the sake of the gospel. And this, too, is what it looks like, isn't it, to put Paul's instructions into action. The life of discipleship is a life willing to take risks for the kingdom. A life of costly obedience. A life that reflects the image of a suffering servant. And what that means for us, well, it means all kinds of things. And I would invite you to ask the Holy Spirit later on today to, to search you and to ask and to expose to you, what does that mean for me? Because it'll likely mean stepping out of our comfort zones. It means challenging ourselves. It means waking up from the slumber of our comfortable lives and daring to do uncomfortable and risky things. It means praying for courage to take kingdom-building risks and not taking the easy way out. It means saying yes to the one who calls, even if it means losing that which is dear to us. But to say, no, Christ and his kingdom comes first. In the words of the great missionary hymn, which was written in 1938 by Margaret Clarkson, called, So Send I You. 
So send I you to suffer. This is what God says to us, his servants. So send I you to suffer unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unsought, unloved, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to bind the bruised and broken or wandering souls to work, to weep, to wake, to bear the burdens of a world aweary. So send I you to suffer for my sake. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self-will resign, to labor long and love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mine. And so we see in Timothy and Epaphroditus these two pictures of discipleship, concrete expressions of what Paul has been writing about. And we put these two pictures together, we see in, in this sort of real flesh and blood, concrete image what kind of disciples Paul calls us to be. As we follow him in our relationships with one another, we are to be selfless shepherds and suffering servants. But in the end, uh, both Timothy and Epaphroditus were mere humans, weren't they, just like us? And so Timothy didn't play the part of selfless shepherd perfectly. He did it well, but he didn't do it perfectly. And Epaphroditus didn't play the part of suffering servant perfectly either, and neither do we. No matter how hard we may try. So if, if we take nothing more from this message than a simple resolve within us to do better and to do more, to be more like this selfless shepherd and more like this suffering servant, if that's the only thing we take, then we, we're not going to get very far. You see, the two pictures that Paul paints leave us longing for another looking for one who is the true selfless shepherd and the true suffering servant. In other words, we want the full picture. And of course, there is only one. There is only one in all the universe who brings together perfectly these two qualities, and that is Christ himself. Jesus is the ultimate selfless shepherd. As he himself said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There is no greater act of selflessness than what Christ has done for us, and he did it perfectly. He is the perfect embodiment of the selfless shepherd. And Jesus is the ultimate suffering servant. As the prophet Isaiah said of him, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. As we strive and stumble in our call to walk the way of the selfless shepherd like Timothy, and a suffering servant like Epaphroditus, may we come broken and needy and worn to the cross of Christ, where we find new grace for the many ways that we faltered and new strength to keep plodding in his way. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, as we ponder these two pictures that Paul paints, the selfless shepherd in Timothy, 
and the suffering servant in Epaphroditus. It is our desire, O Lord, to be faithful disciples and to grow in our own striving to become better, better selfless shepherds and better suffering servants. And yet, Lord, we do so only as we come to you. By your grace, by your strength, by your power at work within us in the work of sanctification, by you and you alone who is the, the perfect embodiment of the selfless shepherd and the suffering servant. And so, Lord, in the space of silent prayers, we prepare our hearts for communion. I pray that you would speak to us and lead us and challenge us, O Lord, to receive from you again new grace and new strength and new forgiveness and new cleansing that we may grow more into the selfless shepherds and suffering servants you call us to be. Lord, hear our silent prayers. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we come this morning to the table of grace, the table of communion, work within us, O oh Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to shape us, to remake us, to cleanse us and renew us, to nourish us with your food, with your grace, with your mercy, with your cleansing, with your forgiveness, that we may become more and more the selfless shepherds, and the suffering servants that you call us to be. O oh Lord, feed us and draw us to you, apart from whom there is no salvation, there is no forgiveness, there is no cleansing, and there is no discipleship. Lord, draw us to you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.